Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bob Allison is in. Bob Allison of the, the Suffolk University here in Boston and the USS Constitution Museum Board and a leader of Rev 250. And we'll get to, to all that, but thank you for coming back. My pleasure. Great uh, to be here. So this very day is the day, is, yes, the, is uh, the birthday of John Adams. 1735 was born in what was, was in Braintree, in the northern precinct of Braintree, which is now the city of Quincy. So what were his greatest achievements? I would think um, the peace treaty, uh, he was one of the negotiators. Well, he is was the Atlas of Independence. He was the foremost advocate for independence at the Continental Congress and getting Congress to agree to independence. And then as a diplomat, he is part one of the negotiators of the Treaty of Peace with Great Britain. As president, he, is, um, he, he ends a war with France, but I think probably the most significant thing he did was write the Massachusetts Constitution, which is the oldest functioning written constitution in the world. Where is that? The original right now. The original is in the Massachusetts archives. You can go see it. You can see the first page. There actually are two parchment copies of it. And periodically someone does consult it to see if there's a period here or a comma. But why do they why do they want to know that? Well, sometimes it matters for the text. Okay. The uh, meaning of the phrase. Yeah, Did he mean phrase. this? Or and that? the and the initial parchment, there are seven sheets that have writing on them. They had a blank sheet because they thought, okay, there might be amendments. And this is the functioning, um, the thing that keeps the government functioning in Massachusetts. And Adams really constructed this. He was a great student of how governments work and the purpose of government dividing power and making one branch check the other. And Okay, so, so how much of the source of that was the Magna Carta? Well, the Magna Carta is a restriction on what the king can do. This was an agreement. The noble, the king wants to get money, no money from the nobles, and they say, "Hey, you, we, you can't, we won't give you money unless you agree to these certain rules." And that's really the inception of a parliament. That's in 1215. And then there had been a long tradition in England of, um, you know, par- parliament by the 18th century has become the dominant branch in English government, and there is no written constitution in England. Instead, it's precedent, it's whatever parliament says it is, and it's tradition. But here in Massachusetts, there's a great sense that you need a written document that spells out what the rules are, which is why the charter of 1691 was so important, because it spells out the rules. And then when we uh, break with the crown, we okay, so what's our governing structure? And in 1778, the Massachusetts Assembly said, okay, people want a constitution, we'll write one. And so the, the legislature writes a constitution, sends it out to the voters, and they reject it. They say, we don't think you, the legislature, have the power to write a constitution. Had we known you were going to be doing this, we might have sent someone else. A constitution has to be written by a body that represents the sovereign power of the people of the Commonwealth. So it has to be chosen specifically for that purpose. So the people of Massachusetts elect a constitutional convention, and it happens that John Adams has just come home on leave from his diplomatic duties in Europe. He's one of the American commissioners to France. He's been trying to negotiate with Spain. He comes home on leave, and he arrives, and he's told, oh, the people of Braintree have elected you to go to this convention, which is meeting in Cambridge. 
So he goes over to Cambridge. There are about 300 members of this convention, and they first choose a committee to write the Constitution. And then they create that committee, appoints a subcommittee. And the subcommittee consists of John Adams, Samuel Adams, James Bowden. And then, as Adams said, the subcommittee put me on a sub-subcommittee to write the Constitution. So they just said, you do it. He does. Basically. Yeah, he does. You know, in 1776, when Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, Adams hated it. First, because everyone thought Adams had written it. Because this is the most powerful argument for independence anyone had made. Adams had been the foremost advocate for independence. So people think he wrote it. What he doesn't like about it is, Paine says, the simpler a government, the better. You should just have a one-house assembly, and the, that assembly will represent the people. You get rid of the monarch, you get rid of the aristocracy represented in an upper house, the people will never do anything wrong. Adam says, the people of Pennsylvania will fall on their knees, begging the king to take him back under their protection, to spare them from the tyranny of their government. Just because they're not capable? No, he thought they were capable. He just thought, hey, there's really no such thing as the people. And if you have rich people, poor people, those are the two big interests at the time in one house. What's going to happen either is the poor people will outvote the rich people or the rich people will, not being stupid, will bribe the poor people. And so he said you have to separate them. Okay. He said the great art of law giving consists in balancing the rich against the poor in the legislative branch. So he created a state senate that was supposed to represent rich people, and a state house that was supposed to represent the rest of us. So this is the thinking of John Adams. John, exactly. So yeah. he's really, that's the, really the crux of everything. That's the crux. And also the executive, he said, has to be a perfect balance against the legislative. He said they're natural rivals. So periodically now we hear people say, oh, the legislature and the executive can't get along. Isn't that too bad? That's the way it was designed. Right. One has to check the other. Because if you don't have a balance of power, you're going to have a tyranny. That's the only alternative. Did they have executive orders like they have now back then? No. Or is that, no. That, that has unbalanced things? Correct? That has unbalanced okay. things, the executive thing. And, and that's, we can see that trajectory in our um, national government, which I think is of great harm to it. So how much of a template, how exact is the match between Massachusetts Constitution and the uh, federal? It's a pretty interesting match. However, the real architect of the federal Constitution was James Madison, and he really didn't like John Adams. The two of them never really got along. So it's interesting that the Massachusetts Constitution does have this balance between the executive and the legislative, a two-house legislature, an independent judiciary, all things we have in the federal Constitution— but it's unclear if Madison was saying, boy, that's a good example. And it is a system, though, that works, balancing these different interests, recognizing that there are different interests in society that have to check each other. When did the Massachusetts Constitution get written? 1780. 1779-1780. It's submitted then to the voters for ratification, and the town meetings all discuss it. Um, Gary Nash, the historian, has written a book suggesting that maybe they didn't actually take an up or down vote, that people thought, okay, there's going to be another convention to review what we are saying about it, but it does go into effect in 1780. How long was the period between the end of the Revolution and the U.S. Constitution? Those must have been wild and woolly years. There were, yeah. So there, the federal, it's really a mistake to look at the Articles of Confederation, the governing structure of the Congress between 1770 well, the Articles aren't ratified until 1781, so during the war, actually. And then the war ends in 1783. The federal constitution is written in 1787. We've only uh, really asked one question so far. Uh, number two is, 
gets into uh, the early days of John Adams. Was he always? Was it, was it always clear he was going to be great, destined for greatness? Was he always kind of a prominent guy from a prominent family, or was, did he work his way up? He worked his way up. And I just before I forget, I want to remind everyone, tomorrow at noon, that is Wednesday at noon, at the First Church in Quincy, the Church of the Presidents, they will be laying a wreath on his grave. Apparently, Lyndon Johnson thought there should be some acknowledgement of presidents. So the White House every year has a wreath placed on the grave of each president on that president's birthday. So tomorrow, today being John Adams' birthday, they will at noon lay a wreath on his grave. I think sailors from the USS Constitution will be part really? of the honor guard. And of course, Adams is really the founder of the Navy. He, as president, he uh, creates the Department of the Navy and Constitution is actually launched during his administration. And he- there was a, Adams that said we need six frigates? No, it was Washington, was Washington who said that, but then they're not. They're, fin they're, fin they're finished when Adams okay. is president. But getting back to Adams, is a, his childhood, no, his father is a deacon in the church, which is an important thing, but his father is a farmer. And in fact, in the winter, his father would make shoes to sell. And John Adams has to work. He is the oldest son of John Adams and Susanna Boylston Adams. Susanna was actually from a fairly wealthy family in Brookline. Her father, her uncle was uh, Dr. Zabdal Boylston, responsible for smallpox inoculation. Her grandfather was a doctor. So she's from a pretty prominent family, but the Adamses are not. I mean, they're a big family. They've been here since the 1630s. And so his father, church deacon, he had gone to Harvard, respected member of the community, and then young John is uh, smart. So he is taught, and then he does go to Harvard, and the family thinks maybe he'll become a minister, which they see is really the apex of... So, f so for him, going to Harvard was a big jump. It was a big Cause jump. Because when you yeah. you get into Harvard, you be, it's, especially at that time, it's pretty rarefied air for... for yes and no. I mean, a lot of sons of prominent families went, but then a lot went home and became farmers, just became pillars of the community. And so he goes to... And by the way, at that time... Class rank was determined by your family's social standing. His was determined by his mother's instead of his father's because she was from Lucky a wealthy for him. family. Yeah. And his cousin Samuel actually was wealthier than John. So he grows up on a farm and hates farming and also worries then about becoming a minister. His father, as I said, is a deacon. And one of the seminal moments in John Adams' uh, youth was the minister of the church in the northern precinct of Braintree was put on trial for heresy, and the trial's held in the Adams house. And so John Adams observes this trial where the minister is being tried by the deacons and other ministers are there, and he really worries because he knew he thought about things. He was always very outspoken. He did like to argue with people. So what happens if he becomes a minister and people think he's a heretic? And is he going to have to answer to the vestry of a church? So he decides not to become a minister, but then it's unclear what he will become. So he goes out to Worcester and teaches school for a while. Before you go to Worcester, why did they hold the trial in the Adams home? Because they weren't prominent. Was it they were located they, centrally? or they It, was, it wasn't a, a fairly central place. They, they had a lot of chairs, and they did have a big room. So it's in their kitchen. Okay. So you can go into that room today yeah? and sense this. and. And also, the next room is where John Adams learned to read and write his, around the fireside. It's unclear if his mother knew how to read or write, but his father did. And Quinn's Braintree being kind of a small town, it, there was a requirement that towns keep a school if they had a certain number of scholars. So he does 
learn to read and write, and he really takes to it. He really takes to reading and writing. Is that kitchen pretty original? Yes, it Some is. of the wood actually? Yeah, it is. It was original. You know, the, yeah, it, yes, it is. It's really a remarkable house. And that house and the one next to it, which is where his son John Quincy was born, are both remarkable. In fact, the, I th- one of them is the oldest presidential birthplace in the country. And the, it was a farmhouse. And then when the Adamses left for Europe, they rented it to a woman named Phoebe, an African-American woman. And it was one way for the Adamses to help her become a free person, a member of society, by leaving their house in her care. Um, John's brother writes to them saying, oh, she's mismanaging it. And Abigail basically tells him to mind his own business, that she wanted Phoebe to run run the house, which she does. So, yeah, it is a small house. It's a New England salt box, as we would call it. And John Adams, his father, dies in 1761 when John is in his early um, mid-20s. And his father leaves to his two brothers much more land than he leaves to John because his father is thinking, okay, John's by this time becoming a lawyer, isn't going to need all of this land. Which is kind of true. It is kind of true. John winds up buying more land. I mean, he becomes successful as a lawyer after he's taught school for a while and he realizes this isn't for him. He starts studying law, and then you did it by reading law with a lawyer. And John really takes to the study of the law. In fact, he's a great legal scholar. In the mid-1760s, he writes a wonderful essay, a dissertation on the canon and feudal law, showing how a development of a legal system helps to preserve liberty. And that's really the thing that guides him through life is the idea of the law as a way of protecting liberty. So we get out to Worcester. John really hasn't set it on set on a path yet, yeah. but he discovers his path while in Worcester. Yeah, yeah. The reading the law. And I think the other thing that happens in the mid seventeen sixties is he meets Abigail Smith, who's a daughter of a minister in Weymouth. And she becomes the real guiding force in his life. It's impossible to imagine John Adams becoming successful without Abigail who really pushes him and is pushing him to st- to be a lawyer, to be a successful lawyer, and to take stands. And also, she is raising the children when he is away. I mean, she is the lodestar for John Adams. And he studied, he reads the law. Yeah. Is that, that's how you learn the law, by reading? You read it. You act as, serve as a clerk to a lawyer, which means okay. you also have to copy a lot of documents. Yeah. And a lot of young guys just take this, okay, I'm getting, this is, you know, they take an easier way out. He is always driven. And he writes about how he always has to dig treasures with his fingernails. It's not wanting to be a farmer and not wanting to be a teacher. So what do you do? And also, he doesn't have the same social advantages that other lawyers in Boston do. That is, he comes from a farm in Quincy. He's having to make something of himself. All of his life, it seems, he's having to prove himself to other people. He really is always at odds with the New England aristocracy, the people who have have more advantages than he did. And then later he's at odds with Jefferson, who's he is at odds with Jefferson. Also this is, aristocracy. This is one of the real curious didn't things. Didn't mean to get you off no, track. No, this is really one of the curious things because Thomas Jefferson becomes the uh, exponent of the common man, and John Adams we see as the real advocate for aristocracy. But Which is the, the reverse ho- of yeah. Look at the houses these two guys lived in. Right. Jefferson lives on top of a mountain. Yeah. And the only people he sees are ones he owns. Adams lives on the corner of a street in Quincy. And then he buys a house. When he's off in France, he and Abigail realize they're 
small salt boxes aren't big enough. So he remembers the really big vassal house in Quincy and so buys it. And then Abigail comes to it in 1789 and realizes this isn't as big as we thought. It was the biggest house they had ever seen. But then she had been living in Paris and in London, has seen really big houses. And so they expand that house, which he calls Peacefield, after the peace treaty that his administration signs with France in 1800, or the peace convention. So, he, But it's still a farm. He is still farming. And when he leaves the White House, it's to go back to farming because he still has to support the family. I should say, in 1770, his law practice is just beginning to pick up, and he then is elected to the Massachusetts Provincial Con uh, to the General Court. And Abigail is furious because now he is in politics. It's going to take time away from his law practice, which is just becoming successful because she knows how dedicated he is to anything he takes on. So he goes into politics. The guy who takes over his law practice becomes one of the wealthiest lawyers in Massachusetts, whereas John Adams, when he leaves the White House, involuntarily retired by the voters in 1801, has to go back to farming. So the way you become a lawyer at the time is not go to law school. No, there weren't simply law read the law, take yeah. the bar. Yeah. Was there a bar exam? A bar exam was a number of guys who are lawyers, and often a judge too, will examine you. That is, they'll ask you questions and determine whether or not you know enough law to practice. So that was the bar examining you. It comes from the English tradition. There is the Temple Bar on, uh, in, in London, and the new lawyers process past it, which is why it's called passing the bar. There, there was oh a bar. Oh, my God. Exam. Yeah, but here it is. A group of lawyers would determine whether you were qualified to uh, practice law. So there's a Temple Bar in, uh, in London. Dublin, too, right? Really? There may be. I think. It must be the same thing. Yeah, the same idea. This is what the lawyers, uh, uh, when they pass the bar. What would you say the first big break for John is, as far as notoriety? Okay, in well, there's dissertation on the canon and feudal law, and then in the mid 1760s, there's actually a case of um, piracy. Uh, owner of a ship or master captain of a ship is killed by the crew, and there's a big trial about this. And Adams is the lawyer who defends these guys accused of piracy and actually gets them off. I mean, he is a very good lawyer in that he does this work. By the way, being a lawyer wasn't a glamorous thing. You traveled throughout the Commonwealth, or throughout the state, and that's from Maine to Cape Cod. You and the prosecuting lawyers and often the judges kind the of travel together. Yeah. The and circuit so, court. So you travel also, the yes, circuit. They would travel the circuit. So they'd get to, say, Berkshire County, and then if there were any legal business before the court, I mean, you, the lawyer, would go and meet with your clients, find out what their case was, and then you would argue their case. Wow. And do that, and you're often stay. sometimes there was a courthouse, sometimes the court met in a tavern, and then the lawyers are all staying upstairs, they're all sharing rooms. We have two different versions of what happened with the massacre. Uh, according to Adams, someone who was a friend of Captain Preston came to see him and said, here's this man sitting in jail, doesn't have any friends, and he's going to go on trial for his life, and no one will defend him. And Adams says, in a free country, counsel is the last thing anyone should need. So he agrees to take the case. There's another version of it that first the guy had approached Josiah Quincy, who's also from uh, the northern precinct of Braintree, from the Quincy family, for whom the city of Quincy is now named. Josiah Quincy's nickname was the Patriot. And he and John Adams were um, compeers. That is, they were roughly the same age. Josiah Quincy was... Um, taking notes of all of the cases in Superior Court, also a lawyer. And 
Josiah's brother Samuel is the prosecutor in the case. And Josiah thinks the same thing. They approach him, will you take the case? And he says, if John Adams will be, will assist me. And Josiah Quincy's father can't believe he's defending Captain Preston and the soldiers. And his so brother is? Samuel is the prosecutor. Is the prosecutor, yeah. wow. Along with Robert Treat Payne, who is another patriot. You know, the patriots want to put these guys away. They killed civilians yeah. and so on. Samuel Adams, he's great propaganda value in this. But John Adams and Josiah Quincy say we have to defend them because we want to show that these guys killed unarmed civilians in the streets of Boston. Boston can give them a fair trial, which they do. And they are. And, it, and the easy thing to do would be to take Preston's case and say he never ordered the soldiers to fire. And then take the soldiers' case and say they were ordered to fire. But the problem is Quincy and Adams are defending both guys. So what they really do is say they were provoked. They were under attack, showing that they were under attack. And in his closing argument to the jury, John Adams says that facts are stubborn things. The law must be inexorable to the lamentation, inexorable to the cries of the accused, but deaf, deaf as an adder to the lamentations of an outraged populace. Yeah, Boston wants to hang these guys, but... The law shows that they were under attack, and thus they have the they can act in self-defense, which he does. It's a brilliant defense. So, does this court case and his sensibilities really inform the judicial, you know, our country's yes. system of law uh, justice? I hope so. Yes, it does, because the idea that anyone can get a fair trial—that that comes from him. Well, it comes primarily. From that, well, it was he was such a big advocate of this. Okay. I mean, in seventeen, you know, every year Boston would commemorate the massacre with uh, orations and things. And in 1773, he was invited to give the oration. He thought that would be in poor taste, since, of course, he was the guy who got the, um, the soldiers off. But he did say that had those soldiers been hanged, it would have been as foul a blot on us as the hanging of the witches in 1693. Wow. You know, it would have shown that we're vengeful and that we can't look at the facts, which, as he said, are stubborn things. John Adams used to say... It is more important that the innocent be protected than the guilty be punished. Well, actually, he was quoting Cesar Beccaria, who okay. was a, an Italian philosopher, and better that one a thousand hundred guilty men go free than that one innocent man be punished. I mean, he quotes Beccaria, he quotes Harrington, Sidney. I mean, he quotes the great leading lights of the Enlightenment. People, Bostonians knew, and he also talks about imagine this were a press gang. Uh, he, he puts the soldiers in the same position as. Bostonians, when a press gang had come ashore in 1748, and then again in the late 1760s, and don't people have a right to protect themselves? And he shows that the soldiers were under attack, that people were shouting, kill them. And he also tries to blame outsiders, an, an addicts from Framingham, a car from Ireland, who give the good people of Boston a bad reputation. But he's really putting the mob on trial. Samuel Adams, by the way, is furious with the verdict because, of course, he wanted to punish someone for this. So is Rev 250, the, the group that coordinates historic sites to celebrate the 250th anniversaries of events like the yeah. Boston Massacre, have anything coming up planned to commemorate the Boston Massacre? Well, the Bostonian Society is doing a pretty good job with events around the Boston Massacre. I mean, they do this every year, and this year they're going to be focusing on Crispus Attucks and his role there will be a reenactment because this is the 250th anniversary. Where Rev 250 is planning, probably in the fall, will be a reenactment of the trial. 
because that's really the critical event that makes this more than just here is this big riot that happened in March. It's really the foundation of- uh, You're going to reenact the trial? Yeah, yeah. So with actual lawyers? Actual lawyers and uh, witnesses. I mean, the great Henry Knox is a witness. Do you have your lawyers yet? We haven't lined them up yet. Huh. uh, Yeah, because we need John Adams, Josiah Quincy, Samuel Quincy, Samson Blau. By the way, Samson Blowers, who is the other um, counsel for the defense, winds up remaining loyal to the crown, and he becomes, I think, chief justice in Nova Scotia. How much time do you think it would take out of a, a lawyer's year to do to be the lawyer in the in the play it takes a cons- well i don't know i mean suffolk did this back in 2000 when we opened our new law school building my colleague joe mckettrick put together a play which was well went for about two hours and the lawyers did a tremendous amount of learning their lines we had judges who were our suffolk alums yeah. who served as judges in the trial. They loved wearing the wigs and the costumes. Maybe it should be a, an out-of-work or retired lawyer because they need the time to, to vote to this. Although it needs to be, well, in this case, we had law students who were doing oh, okay. it. And of course, they um, have all the time in the world, but also they have that energy that you need. So it was really, I, I was in the jury in the first go-round, and then I was a soldier in the second time we did it. It was really a great experience. The juror next to me fell asleep, and people said, how did they know? It was so accurate. How did they know which juror fell asleep? Interesting. Yeah. Now, next, next we go with the uh, Continental Congress. Yeah. So Adams is chosen by Massachusetts to represent, be it part of its delegation to the Continental Congress in 1774. This is after the destruction of the tea. Parliament shuts down the port of Boston. And so Massachusetts calls for a Continental Congress, a Congress of all the other colonies, to help out in this fight against uh, have, having Parliament shut them down. And the real worry here is the other colonies are going to say, you know, you people really brought this on yourselves. You know, they shut down Boston. We don't want them to shut down New York or Charlestown or Philadelphia. So you wacky Puritans really overstepped your bounds. So that's a real worry that the other colonies, will, you know, Massachusetts had kind of a reputation for being uh, self-righteous, puritanical, always thinking that they are in the right. And some things have changed and some things haven't, I think. At this period, Massachusetts really was a very important place, and they wanted the other colonies to side with them. So it's really a great effort on John Adams and Samuel Adams's part to get the other colonies to say, you know what, we're going to stand with Massachusetts and say the British Act shutting down the port really need to be repealed, they need to reopen the port. And so that's a major achievement in 1774. Congress sends a petition to the British Crown saying, tell Parliament to lighten up. And then uh, having sent off this petition, uh, some of the more um, less radical members of Congress didn't want to do more. Adams was probably ready to declare independence. So was this Congress in response to the Intolerable Acts? Yes, exactly. And what were those acts? There was that shutting down the port of Boston, suspending the Massachusetts government, replacing the Massachusetts government with... um, a governor appoint, uh, actually General Gage, suspending the assembly, telling Boston, we'll open the port when you pay for the tea, and also the Quebec Act, okay. which extended the boundary of Quebec to the Ohio River and also let the Catholic Church flourish in Quebec. Wow. The Ma- New England thought that was intolerable, having Catholicism so close to it. We kind of downplay that now when we talk about the Intolerable Act, saying how vehemently anti-Catholic they were. One of the really surprising things for Adams and the others was Isaac Backus comes to Philadelphia, too. He's a guy from Massachusetts. He's a Baptist minister. He wants to know how come the Massachusetts Assembly taxes Baptists 
to support the Congregational Church. And the New Englanders are really upset because Congress not only says, Bacchus has a point, they let him lead the prayers in Congress one day. And they tell Massachusetts, these guys from Massachusetts, you really need to do something so the Baptists aren't paying taxes. Robert Treat Payne, another of the delegates, tells Bacchus, you Baptists aren't really interested in uh, your religious freedom. You just don't want to have to pay taxes. And Bacchus says, that's exactly what Parliament says about you guys, not wanting to pay taxes. So it must have been difficult and really important to get Virginia and those southern colonies on board. It was, yeah. And really because they, had, they were doing business and they had a lot to lose. Virginia was the largest colony by far. It was big. And this is, by the way, the Congress, it's the first time John Adams sees people who aren't from New England. And he comments on all of them. The Virginia geese, he says, are all swans. I mean, these Virginians, they're all slave owners. They own He's talking about Jefferson? Well, Jefferson wasn't there yet, but he's talking about Washington, okay. definitely, who is there, and Peyton Randolph, and these other Virginia aristocrats who are real aristocrats. There are some fairly wealthy people in Massachusetts, but nothing like the Virginians. The New Yorkers, he said, they talk very fast, and they'll ask you a question, and before you finish your answer, they've asked you another one, and they don't really listen. And Philadelphia, he says, a very orderly. The thing that really strikes him in Philadelphia is not only is there an Anglican church, a Quaker meeting house, a Congregational church, a Presbyterian church, there's also a Catholic church. And John Adams goes to a mass at St. Joseph's Church in Philadelphia. And he says they have the painting of Jesus up above the altar, and they have the chanting, the incense, the stained glass. He says it's a wonder that the Reformation ever happened. And he goes to the Quaker meeting house. He goes to the Presbyterian meeting house. I mean, he hears these different sermons. And it really is astonishing to him. And when he leaves Philadelphia, he says, it's unlikely it will ever see this part of the world again. It's really an eye-opening experience. And so that was the first contact he'd come, he's had with any other religion. Yeah, exactly. Much. It was. Wow. It really was. And then Isaac Backus, this Baptist from Massachusetts, shows up. And John Adams is the only one of the Massachusetts delegates who takes this seriously, that maybe we shouldn't tax the Baptists to pay for the congregational ministers. And in fact, one of his last public acts in 1820, he goes to the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention, which is called to revise the Constitution he had written 40 years earlier, and he is the one that argues for disestablishing the congregational church. And it's really thanks to him in 1820 that Massachusetts does separate church and state, which it had not done up to that point. Well, let's take a break, and we'll get into the, we'll fast forward to the the presidency because that should take considerable time. Yeah. It's WBZ. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're going to go right into the, the presidency and the election of 1796. Uh, we had Washington do two terms with Adams as vice president. I guess that's yes. a nice nod to him. It was, yeah. And in fact, the first election in 1788, the electors are chosen mainly by the state legislatures. In some cases, they're elected in congressional districts. It's really not until the 1820s that we see a lot of states having the electors chosen by popular vote, whoever gets the most votes. 
And in this case, 1788, there are 69 electors. All of them vote for George Washington. Alexander Hamilton, who really organized the campaign, knew, okay, they had pretty much decided that Washington would be the president, and then Adams, because he was from New England and had experience in foreign affairs, would be the vice president. But Hamilton was worried. What happens if every elector votes for Washington and Adams? That would mean Congress would have to choose, even though everyone knew Washington was the guy they wanted for president. So he writes to electors saying, uh, vote for Washington and someone else. You know, if he wanted to avoid a tie, he only needed to write to one. 35 electors vote for someone other than John Adams. So Adams gets 34 votes. I mean, Adams can count. And he was kind of sensitive to this. And then Washington really recognizes that the vice president presides over the Senate. And so if he's involved in the administration, that's a, that's blending the, it's avoid, avoiding the separation of powers. So Washington wants to prevent that. So he doesn't have anything to do with Adams when Adams is vice president. Then in 1796, Washington announces he's not going to run again. So this is the first national election in which Washington won't be a candidate. By the way, both times Washington ran, he received the vote of every elector. So the Federalists pretty He was much, the man. He was the man. The Federalists pretty much decide, okay, John Adams and Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina. Yeah. The other side decides Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Now, again, Hamilton worries that Adams is too independent. Adams thinks for himself Pinckney would be easier for Hamilton to control. So Hamilton writes to electors saying, you know, maybe you should vote for Pinckney and someone else. And he thought... The South Carolina electors, maybe they'll vote for Pinckney and Jefferson, which would mean Pinckney becomes president, Jefferson vice president, or Adams vice president, but it backfires. The electors say, we don't want to listen to Hamilton, and so Adams is elected, but enough don't vote for Pinckney that Jefferson becomes vice president. Now, neither Jefferson nor Adams liked the idea of political parties, so initially it looks like these two guys who are old friends are going to cooperate. Jefferson writes a letter to Adams saying, you always preceded me in service and in honors. It's only right now that you should be uh, president and I should be vice president. And he congratulates Adams for avoiding the machinations of his arch friend from New York, meaning Hamilton. Both of them, neither one of them liked Hamilton. Right. In fact, Adams described Hamilton in a way that I don't think I'm allowed to repeat on the air. Um, the fact that Hamilton was illegitimate and it was a son of something that's soon right. to be illegal to say in the wow. Commonwealth. But anyway, Adams um, does become president, Jefferson vice president, and the two really don't do anything together during the administration. And the big problem in the administration is the war with France. And Adams sends negotiators to France, and the negotiators go and are told before they get to see the foreign minister, they're going to have to bribe everyone along the way. And in their dispatch back home reporting this, they say, Monsieur X told us we'd have to pay him 10,000 um, francs, and then Monsieur Y would want 10,000 francs, and then Monsieur Z would want 10,000 francs. It's known as the XYZ affair. And the Americans say, millions for defense, not one cent for tribute. We're not going to pay off the right. French. We're going to fight them. So this is when Congress builds a navy. Also, uh, we built a navy because we couldn't make a deal. We didn't yeah. want to pay them. Yeah. pay them off. We started building a navy when we were trying about to fight Algiers. Then we make peace with Algiers, so the navy is put on mothballs. But now we're going to finish building it. We do. We launch the frigates, and John, Ad- the administration, the Congress creates the Department of the Navy. 
and Adams actually signs the commissions for most of the men who go on to heroic careers in the Navy. In fact, during the War of 1812, Adams now is retired, and there's a dinner in Boston for the heroes of 1812, for the heroes of 1812. And someone says to him, aren't you surprised by how well the Navy is doing? And Adams says, no. And then he realizes that could be taken as a curt answer. So he says, when I was in France in the 1780s, an American warship came to Le Havre, and everyone came out to see it. And the French minister of the Marine said to me, the Americans will become the greatest shipbuilding maritime power in the world because they can build better ships than anyone else. So Adams knew this. And then he also sees the importance of the Navy. He had seen it in the 1780s when we didn't have one and Algiers was capturing our ships, our merchant ships. So he sees this and the Navy really is built to fight the French in 1798 and 99. Congress also passes the Alien and Sedition Acts while he's president, which clamps down on dissent. A and he years, signs off. He signs, he signs off, off on, on that. that. And that's yeah. a black mark on it's him. It's a black. You know, a couple of years ago, I was at the Adams House talking to a descendant, a woman, charming woman named Abigail, and she said, "I've been having the Alien and Sedition Acts thrown in my face since I was in third grade." Yeah, it's a black mark, and the um, Congress passes them. Adams ultimately stops enforcing the 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 um, Sedition Act because he sees one of the people who's jailed under it, Matthew Lyon, congressman from Vermont, is thrown in jail, and while he's in jail, he's reelected. Well, something's happening here. Yeah. And then Adams's focus then is uh, peace with France. He sends another commission to France to negotiate a peace treaty. A new government in France approves it, so he ends the war with France. At about the same time, he's being defeated for reelection by Thomas Jefferson. And it's about this time in um, November of 1800, he's moved into the White House, the first president to live in Washington. He's moved into this unfinished building. He writes a letter to Abigail about what a desolate place Washington is. He hasn't really seen anyone yet. But he says, but before I close, let me call down the blessings of heaven on this house and on all who may hereafter live in it. May none but good and wise men rule under this roof. And he knows at that time he's probably not going to be living under that roof. Uh, that, by the way, that phrase is now inscribed in a fireplace in the East Room of the White House. That phrase, may none but good and wise men rule under this roof. And then he's defeated by Jefferson. This is the first time an administration has been voted out. And the thinking is, will he leave? But of course, Adams does because he knows the rule of law and goes home. He's Plus, not, he wasn't that happy as he president. He, he didn't really no, like it. He, he didn't really like it. You know, you're constantly under attack. He doesn't get along with members of his own administration. In fact, he winds up firing most of his cabinet. And the real arch-federalists say he wouldn't have done this if Abigail were in town because she was a much sterner federalist than he was. Hamilton was the head of this provisional army that had been created to fight the French. And Adams tells him, we're disbanding the army. And Hamilton says, what happens if the French invade? And Adams says... There's as much chance of a French army invading heaven as one invading the United States. And he really doesn't get it. would have been good for him to have fired the cabinet earlier because they were more loyal to Hamilton than they were to Adams. And Adams, Hamilton was right. Adams was his own man. And in the last couple of minutes, um, from that point to... His, the end of his days, any, any landmark things happen? Well, as I said, he participates in the Constitutional Convention. One of the really important things that happens is about 1809 or so, 
he and Jefferson reopened their correspondence. They had been friends in the 1770s, worked very closely together in Congress. In fact, Adams was the one who pushes Jefferson to write the Declaration. Adams was also the one who nominated Washington to command the Continental Army. In both cases, he said, you need a Virginian in charge of doing this. And then he and Jefferson had been diplomats together in Europe and very close collaborators in Europe. Uh, they were, uh, Adams was in London and Jefferson was in Paris. And Jefferson actually squires John Quincy around London. And later on, when John Quincy is elected president, John Adams writes to Jefferson saying, our John has become president. He said, I call him our John because when we were together in Paris, I thought he was as much your son as mine. We have to go now. We, we did what we could to cover as much as we could. Thank you so much, My Robert pleasure. Bob Allison from Suffolk University and the Constitution Museum Board of Trustees and Rev 250. And keep, me, keep us all informed as Rev 250 events Thank you. become relevant. Noon tomorrow, laying a wreath on John Adams' crypt. Excellent. And uh, Bob will be in as soon as we can get him in, talk about somebody else in the excellent way that he has treated John Adams. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.